Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there's been a lot of talk about the London laundromat. It's not a chain of dry cleaners. It's a system by which billions in dirty money, that's money that's stolen or the product of corrupt deals, has come to London and been laundered through the property and stock markets, ably assisted by a cast of bankers, lawyers, estate agents and PR flunkies. Our own markets have become contaminated by this corrupt money, some think. We're vulnerable because we don't know and we don't have the tools to know exactly what's going on. Now in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, the UK government is toughening sanctions on Russians and seeking to change the law. This week, Roman Abramovich put Chelsea up for sale along with the massive mansion he owns in London's Billionaire's Row. We're joined today by someone who's made it his business to know more than most of us about dirty money. That's Tom Purgis, an FT investigative journalist who's published a book called Kleptopia. Came out last year and still available in all good bookshops. And along with good reviews, it's come under legal attack from a group of oligarchs from Kazakhstan. But I'm pleased to say he's so far prevailed in the High Court this week. And so welcome, Tom. Welcome to Long Time Finance. Yeah, it's very nice to join you. Good. Well, look, we'll come to your case later. But let's start off by talking a bit about the, the laundromat. Now, you wrote a whole book looking at this subject, and you've talked about dirty money as an ex- existential threat to our democracy. Can you explain the threat? And also, do you think it has subverted British politics? Well, I'd say it's it's a threat in two ways. One is by doing business every day, usually in the global commodity markets with corrupt dictators, we enrich them and strengthen them. That could be Putin, that could be the House of Saud, that could be the Congolese regime. The list is long. Then we further strengthen them by allowing them to stash their corrupt loot in our economies. Ironically enough, they deny their, their own people the rule of law in order to facilitate the plunder that goes on. And then they seek the protection of the rule of law for these dirty assets. And then the second way in which kleptocracy is undermining democracy is maybe subtler, which is what that money does when it arrives. So what does it do to a democracy when vast amounts of money, hundreds of billions upon hundreds of billions, is entering our economy? Talk about the UK. It's entering our our economy is being used to buy influence in our universities, in our media, in our political parties, and in our legal system. I mean, the things I'm listing are the democracy, essentially. Take those away and there isn't one. What does it do when money that flows from the rule of the few starts to flow into the institutions that are supposed to guarantee the rule of the many? And that's the home front. And those are the two ways, I'd say, in which kleptocracy is attacking democracy. And I'd say they're pretty terrifying. The second one, when you're talking about the way in which it can sort of uh, change the marketplace, the kind of way we do business here, is obviously slightly a function of volume. We're talking about dirty money coming into the UK and buying up assets, buying up properties, doing all the things you've described. It's a problem that magnifies possibly exponentially, as the the sums get bigger. I don't really have a feel for how big those sums are, and I just wonder whether there is a number out there which people have put 
where they can say, well, 20 years ago it was X, now it's 400X or whatever. Okay, so on the most basic level, there are indicators you can look at. You know, Transparency International talks about $1.5 billion worth of UK property owned by Russians accused of corruption or connected to the Putin regime. The National Crime Agency talks about $100 billion of criminal money that goes through the UK economy every year. It's very difficult to define. So let's say in an entirely hypothetical case, the son-in-law of an ex-Soviet dictator hires one of our finest reputation management law firms to attack a journalist and his newspaper day after day after day in confidential correspondence regarding an attempt to write about corruption. Does that count as money laundered through the UK? Does that count as dirty money present in the UK? Do those fees that go to that law firm count towards the tally? Similarly, if a Russian with a few connections to the the Russian intelligence agencies made made a fortune in, in Moscow in the 90s and shifted to the UK, keeps all that money offshore, does his offshore fortune then count towards the UK's dirty money tally? He enjoys citizenship in the UK, but his money stats in the British Virgin Islands or Switzerland or wherever it may be, apart from the little bit of it he uses to give political donations. There's two reasons why your question is hard to answer. One is because obviously this, this stuff happens largely in secret, apart from the stuff that is deliberately ostentatiously to do with reputation laundering, like buying a bit of Oxford University or wherever it may be. But secondly, it's in a way unhelpful because I think what we're talking about is the influence of powerful figures from kleptocratic regimes. And that can't be counted in the same way. Could I just ask, one of the things that bothers me is the question of definition. The UK is a very open economy. And one of the reasons why it's open is that we think that that is the way to operate. And we have a lot of foreign investment into the country, at least some of which is perfectly legitimate. Indeed, I might say the majority is probably legitimate. How do you decide that something that comes in is from a kleptocratic regime rather than, if you like, honestly acquired and somebody with the ability to do so has decided that the UK is a good place to invest. And I think that this is something which is often overlooked. How do you distinguish between those two things? Yeah, that's the crucial question. I'd say this is absolutely the debate we should be having now for the reasons I gave at the beginning, which is I think that these kleptocratic forces are an existential threat to democracy. But how do you define them? A place to start is from a slightly different angle, I'd say, which is a lot of the global economy especially in basic goods, looks to me and looks to a lot of people in West Africa, the Middle East, the former Soviet Union, so on, essentially like handling stolen goods. The people of Kazakhstan, so that's where I spent quite a lot of time recently researching for my book, reporting. The people of Kazakhstan have never given their consent for the Nazarbayev regime, the ruling regime, to preside over the sale of their, we think it's collectively owned, natural wealth, the state's wealth principally the oil under the Caspian Sea and some uranium too. They've never consented to that. Sorry, so I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, do you suggest that we should have a list of those regimes which we think tick the box as being tolerably representative of their citizens and the rest, and then we're not gonna, we'll say we're not going to have any input, capital input from the regimes that we don't like? And we keep looking at this list. That seems highly impractical to me. Yeah, I hadn't quite got that far. But I'm saying that before we start coming to our decisions might be, I think we have to look in a clear-eyed way at how the global economy works. 
almost all supplies of oil, gas, and other natural resources come from corrupt dictatorships. Everybody knows this. <laughs> and Except in the United States. I think you don't include that as a corrupt dictatorship, presumably. Almost all exports. Okay. We know this to be the case. We, we know that every time ExxonMobil makes a payment in Equatorial Guinea, it's making a payment to a regime controlled by a profoundly unpleasant, violent kleptocrat. I'm not even talking here about you know, the bribery that happens under the table in so much of this industry. I'm talking about just the payments to governments that have been captured by gangsters. And with every payment, we strengthen those gangsters. Now, you can't get away from that. Now, it may be that we say, well, we can't live without these supplies of raw materials. But that doesn't allow us to wish away the effect, which is that we feed this growing band of kleptocrats who are themselves uniting and interlinking, often through sometimes clandestine sanctions-busting relationships like the ones between, let's say, Iran, Venezuela, and Russia. That is the political effect of this business that we do. I take that point. To go back to, if you think about the, the oil business, for example, or other mineral resource extraction, what would be the difference you would draw between, say, Saudi Arabia, which has been a large supplier to the West and a kind of perceived in some ways as an ally of the West for decades, going back to the Second World War, and Kazakhstan now. Is it fundamentally sort of globalisation which has made this different, which has just made it a sort of generalised free-for-all and the idea that there's such a huge amount of this money sloshing around and that it's become a problem? Or what is the qualitative change that we've seen that we need to act on now? The, the qualitative change between the Cold War and post-Cold War, that is the crucial moment, isn't it? When the greatest single act of corruption that I think anyone could point to in modern history is what happened at the end of the Soviet empire, when the, the wealth of an entire empire was gathered up by, essentially, largely by a few apparatchiks, spooks and gangsters, many of whom tried to rebrand themselves as successful businessmen and some of whom belong in this category we call oligarchs. The crucial change, of course, was that the Soviet Union was largely blocked off from the global economy. And the post-Soviet kleptocracies are utterly plugged into the global economy. So yeah, I think you're right. I, th I think the short answer is, yeah, what's changed is globalisation. And that has allowed the globalisation of kleptocracy. I mean, I touched on it a moment ago, but I think good examples of this are unwanted side effects of major sanctions is that you start to create the shadow global economy when everyone on the outside of the club is linking up. You see a lot of traces of a lot of commercial relationships that have formed among those subject to, let's say, the Trump era sanctions. China, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, for instance. Can we just assume that this exists? We see, I think we, No, but I, it's been established. It's, there are UN reports on this. There are photos. There are sure. traces. I mean, we don't have all that much time, and I'd very much like to know what you feel should or could be done about it. Well, you're right that it is impractical to say we are no longer going to do any business with corrupt regimes anywhere in the world overnight desirable politically as that might be <laughs> but, but, but but what we could impractical do, is a bit of a, a bit of an understatement it would impoverish us considerably agreed all, all i'm saying on that point is we have to recognize the effect of that but what we could do right is is remove the the greatest gift we give to the global kleptocracy which is financial secrecy i, th I think that's a good point but i'm not sure how you do it I mean, how do you 
really practically find out the well, beneficial ownership of something. Well, well, hang on. Let's okay. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point to touch on. But maybe we can rope it into what the government is trying to right. do with its economic crime spill and whether that's likely to be in any way effective at getting at this problem. Right. I mean, there's a lot we could say about the government's response, but I think that one really important thing that's not received a lot of attention is that they've introduced strict liability for sanctions busting, although I think they're talking about introducing it. That seems to be part of the plan. Strict liability in this context means... Right, means that sanctions busting will from now on be treating like treated like speeding, right? Essentially meaning if you're caught speeding or you underpay your tax, it doesn't matter if you were speeding because your wife was giving birth in the back seat or because you were being chased by a gangster, it's illegal. There's no question of motive no or excuse. mitigating circumstances. If you're over the speed limit, bang, done. That's now going to apply to sanctions busting. Before, it used to be the case that to be found liable for breaking sanctions, you had to be shown that you would have been reasonably expected to know that the transaction you were doing would violate sanctions. So it has a sort of mens rea part of it. So that's a punishment when you're caught. But the issue, I suppose, is no, 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 uncovering but no, no, it's more, no, what's no, it's, going it's more on. Than that. This is why the strict liability is so important. A few of us have been talking about this for ages, this idea of strict liability. It's the deterrent effect. So it has a huge deterrent effect on doing business with any anonymously held company that you might even have the merest suspicion could be linked to any sanctioned entity. Oh, now, I what see. I'm saying is you apply that that strict liability much more broadly. So you apply it, let's say, for instance, to corruption, to breaches of the anti-corruption law, which at the moment, the test in the UK and the US is, is again, to do with what a reasonable person might be expected to suspect. You apply strict liability on breaches of money laundering. That's a little bit more tricky, but certainly on breaches of the UK anti-corruption law. That would be a massive blow to the ability of kleptocrats to use anonymously held companies. I believe. Right. Well, that's quite encouraging. Could I just follow up and say some of the guilty people here are essentially the full supporting casts for these kleptocrats, the lawyers, the accountants, the PR men. Is there any way that they can be reined in in such a way as to make it possible for journalists like you to stand up against the legal batteries. So I think there's all manner of things that these so-called enablers do for kleptocrats. But I think you're zooming in there on what's called lawfare, which is yes. the abuse of the legal process to try and shut down legitimate scrutiny of, let's say, an oligarch's activities, of which I've had some experience. When I, when I was preparing to publish Kleptopia, we went through a sort of fact-checking exercise and I received legal correspondence from you know the Carter Rocks, the Shillings, and so on, some of which was pretty insulting and pretty menacing, that ran to twice the length of the book. This is the reality yes. of working Lovely on it. Doesn't surprise, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't surprise me in the least. But what could be done about it? I know you've suffered, but at least you've got the book out, which is something. But what would you suggest could be done about so it? So it looks like there are pretty strong moves afoot to have a public inquiry into these so-called slaps, right? Strategic lawsuits against public participation. One thing that needs close scrutiny, I would say, is the use of corporate claimants. This has been a big thing in the case that we won this week, which was a London holding company controlled by oligarchs from the former Soviet Union bringing a lawsuit. It also came up in Catherine Belton's case, the author of Putin's people regarding Rosneft bringing legal action against her when 
one might argue that the person she was actually writing about was Igor Sechin. So this is a crucial thing. I haven't got a prescription for you yet because this debate is still young, but that's a crucial area to look at. You won your case, I'm delighted to see. How much of it was on the technicality that the judge ruled that a corporation was incapable of being libeled? It was the individuals in it that uh, should have brought the case. We're all still studying the ruling, but that was an important part, I believe, of the, of the judge's position. Yeah, the importance of differentiating between corporate persons, and what they actually do in the real world, and real people. This cuts across everything we've been talking about today. The extent to which our economic affairs have conferred so many privileges on corporate persons, relieving responsibilities from human beings. Yes, it's not just in a case like yours, it's, uh, it's across the board. So that entirely, you can, yeah. So you can see terrible examples like the post office, where the bad man is the uh, is the corporation, and the individuals behind it escape. One hundred percent. I mean, look at the rise. I mean, part of the reason kleptocrats and their allies in Western business have been so enabled is this culture of deferred prosecution agreements, right? That's pioneered in the U.S. Sure, it brings in a lot of money, but it basically means that human beings, in the form of senior business executives at, let's say, oil companies, mining companies, and arms companies, can make their personal fortune through you know enormous bonuses by doing fantastically corrupt deals and not one of them suffers the consequences of that and when seven years later which is the average time it takes to do a corruption case when seven years later the company is found guilty of corruption the current shareholders pay the fine i mean that's a mismatch of rights responsibility yeah, yeah. surely no, it's <laughs> absolutely it's totally ridiculous to loop back to the to the legislation that the government's planning to bring out this economic crimes bill. How far will that go in answering any of the the sort of issues we've been talking about just now? They don't address this fundamental problem of the fact that you can, you know, I think to put it in layman's terms, the fact that you can participate in our economy in disguise, that you can participate in the economy anonymously. That is the the greatest tool of kleptocrats. It doesn't treat that disease. It treats these symptoms with regard to one kleptocracy, the Russian one, by putting certain individuals on a sanctions list. The actual tools in the new economic crime bill, some of them are really useful, actually. I think some of them are real progress. Just to give one example, you know, these unexplained wealth orders, these McMafia orders, which is a great idea. I first came across them in Tanzania, where they were grappling with um, the whole BAE corruption scandal back in, I think I was there in 2005 or six. Someone had this cracking idea of saying, well, hang on a second. It's immensely hard to pierce the corporate secrecy around this, this kind of activity. But what we do know let's say, the Minister of Mines, who's been on a government salary of a few tens of thousands of dollars a year for 20 years, lives in a a $10 million house. And that would seem to be inexplicable. And it's a really useful, okay, there's problems about the burden of proof, inverting the burden of proof, but it's a really useful tool. And they were introduced in the UK, and the National Crime Agency belatedly started using a few of them. And then they discovered that, especially in one very controversial case, it proved very, very difficult to fend off legal challenges. Now, of course, of course, there should be legal recourse for everyone in the face of this kind of order. But what the government's proposing now is to cap the costs of legal challenges to McMafia orders. Because what was happening was the agencies that get to use them were facing the the prospect that if there was a legal challenge to them, the oligarch or the you know family member of a kleptocrat, whoever it might be, who brings a legal challenge, obviously has access to spectacularly expensive legal counsel 
if the state agency loses, then that's a huge chunk of taxpayer money that it has to hand over in costs. So it seems a pretty reasonable move, I think, from the government to protect the taxpayer money in this situation and limit the costs that can be incurred in a legal challenge to one of these McMafia orders. That's a pretty sensible idea. And there's, there's lots of other good things that are to be cheered in the Economic Crime Bill. But as I say, they are all ultimately treating symptoms, not the cause. Well, I think uh, what you're saying is that the bill is a good start along this rather painful long road. And is it good enough to turn the tide against this sort of worldwide conspiracy that you've just outlined? We've got to pull any lever we can that we think might shorten the suffering of Ukrainians, even though there's problems with a lot of them, including sanctions. But it's also true that the premise of the government's position is to say there's money in the UK, large amounts of it, controlled by oligarchs who are so plugged in to Putin's corrupt regime that if we inflict some financial pain on them, that may cause Putin to change course. People who are that connected to the Putin regime. We knew that last week. We knew that last year. The premise is, well, we were fine with it then. And we continue to be fine with money of the same aroma from other kleptocracies. That is essentially the government's position. Yeah, I agree. I think that is I think that is right. I think the truth about the Russian situation is that it's a response to Putin's government becoming a perceived threat to the West rather than any generalized desire to clean up what's going on in, in London. And and I think you're right to question whether it will lead to very much more follow-through on a, on a generalised level rather than a specific sanctions attack on named Absolutely. Absolutely. Jonathan, that goes back to something we were saying at the beginning, is that if this isn't enough to stir people into action, then I think we have to look at, as well as the other side of it, what the dirty money does when it arrives and what it does to the political system, the legal system, you know, the academy, the cultural sphere, the corrupting influence it has within the UK. I think that might also help to produce wider public support for reforms in, on this. Well, let's hope that that happens. But uh, well, look, Tom, it's very nice to talk to you. And Tom, just for just for your information, has a great book out published last year. But actually, I struggled to buy a copy in bookshops. So the first two I went into the other day had sold out. Yeah, so, um, extraordinarily. It's obviously doing very I mean, well. Talk about an own goal. <laughs> the, 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 the lawsuit brought by this London company controlled by a couple of oligarchs who appear in the book. Can we allowed to say who they are? Because it is, it's known. In the book, they refer to as a trio. But actually, one of them has since died. So there's two of them now. Alexander Mashkevich. Serves him right. duo. (laughs) Alexander Mashkevich and Patok Shadiev. They're both um, oligarchs from the former Soviet Union from Central Asia. Plenty of connections in Moscow, too. They disliked, they clearly disliked them, the book. People yeah. talk about the Streisand effect. I mean, they brought, <laughs> they brought, the, they brought the lawsuit. And, and yesterday on World Book Day, <laughs> Kleptopia was the number one bestseller on Amazon in the UK and has been knocked off this morning only by Hey Dougie. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, that, was, that, that was a die to win title. <laughs> well, it's richly deserved. I'm just glad. I tell you, I tell you, you know, I was sitting in court thinking about it. It's quite intense sitting there. Yeah. And what was going through my mind was all these sources in Africa, in Kazakhstan, Moscow, actually, increasingly also in London and Washington, who take, you know, such risks. And we'll never have, never be on a podcast, we'll never have any recognition for the risks they take. And thinking, Jesus, I really hope we do right by them and this book stays out there. And that's what's at stake here I think more than anything to do with me particularly we'd definitely get your Swiss banker Nigel on if he wanted to Nigel I'm afraid is dead oh, okay. uh, 
Tom, it's very good to talk to you. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week. <laughs>